Let's turn in our Bibles then to the passage of Scripture which we read in the first epistle of John. And let's, as God would help me, I'd like to concentrate on the first two verses of chapter 2. First John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. What do you do when you sin? Did you sin yesterday? What did you do about it? What you did about it tells us a lot about the reality of your Christianity. This letter, this epistle, is written to Christians. For Christians. John's gospel was written so that people would believe. But his epistle was written to those who do believe. Chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And here he is saying to Christians, if any one of you Christians sins, what do you do? What are you meant to do? You're not to despair and say, oh, well, I've been mistaken. I can't have been a Christian. John makes it very clear in what we read in chapter 1, in verse 8. If we, that is, we Christians, if we Christians say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then he goes on to say, what do we do if we Christians do sin? What are we to do? Well, the next verse, no, is it verse 9 in chapter 1 tells us categorically, if we confess our sins, we're forgiven. But in chapter 2, our text, it says to us, if we, any of us, we Christians sins, remember two things. We have an advocate with the Father, and Christ is the propitiation of our sins. These two things we must remember 
when we Christians fall into sin. And as God would help us, let's just look at these things. If any one of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Note how everything is put. We have an advocate with the Father. With the Father. You see, Christianity is not really the worship of Christ. Christianity is the worship of the triune God through Christ. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit, one God. But you see, here the picture is of God the Father as the judge. You see, the scene here, the picture we're to have in our minds is of a court scene. You have the judge sitting on the throne, the father. You have the prosecuting counsel, Satan, the devil, accusing the brethren. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Night and day. Revelation 12, 10. Night and day. He accuses the brethren. Last night, he went into the courts of heaven and said something like this. See that child of yours? Says he's a Christian. He sinned yesterday. I'm in hell because of my sin. Why is he not in hell with me? Prosecuting counsel. Satan, the devil. But what we Christians are to remember we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the defense counsel. And that scene we're to picture in Revelation 12, 10. What happens next? When Satan comes forward and says, your child sinned like this, why is he not in hell? The case is allowed to proceed. You know why? Because he's quite right. His children sin daily, if not hourly. What happens then in the court scene? The defence counsel, Jesus Christ, the advocate, steps forward and says, Yes, my Lord, that's true, but, but, my blood paid for all their sins. Let my people go. They're freed. That goes on every night. Am I right? Is that not what the Bible says? Night and day he accuses the brethren. Our advocate, Jesus Christ, is here called Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, some advocates are not righteous. I hope there's none here, but some are not righteous. I've heard of one who said, 
His habit was to say to his clients when he first met them, now look, he says, you tell me the truth, I'll tell the lies. I know the ones that work. Now, that's, I, I was told to me that's true and we believe it. But some advocates are not righteous. They're experts in law seeking for a loophole in the system. Not Christ. Not Jesus, the advocate, the righteous. Not him. Reverently speaking, God's problem in planning salvation. When the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the councils of a past eternity, plans the economy of salvation. Reverently speaking, there was this problem. How can we acquit these people who committed these sins after us declaring the sin, the soul that sins shall die? How can we do it without and remain holy, remain righteous, remain unchangeable? The Godhead is unchangeable. That's how Christ is the wisdom of God. The answer is Christ. The legitimate substitute. Christ paid the penalty. Christ became a human being. And there's two aspects of his righteous, righteous life. His death, you see, on the one hand, his death paid God for the negative figure in our balance sheet with God. The Bible considers sin as a debt. And Christ's death brought our, if we compare our account with God as a balance sheet, Christ's death paid for the negative figure and only brought it up to the all square. But we have to be righteous before God. Not negative, not neutral. And our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The more good works we try to do, they're imperfect, so that's adding to the debt. So, Christ, the righteous, he had to live a perfect life of righteousness so that he could transfer to his people to sinners who repent and believe, he could transfer his righteousness onto them. You see, Christ, before he came to earth, when he was in heaven, he was perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. But that righteousness which he had in heaven was non-transferable to human beings. Non-transferable. So, he came to earth to work out a legitimate righteousness that was, could be legitimately transferred to human beings. Jesus Christ the righteous. His life, his righteous life, perfectly conformed to God's law, can legitimately be transferred to you 
and to me if we believe on Christ. That's why Christ is called the wisdom of God. How to solve the problem of guilty, hell-deserving sinners being in heaven without God changing his mind about his standards or anything like that. You see, it's important to understand. Christ Jesus, the advocate, he does not plead in the courtroom of heaven that you and I are innocent. He doesn't plead, my people are innocent. He can't. It's a lie. We're not innocent. We're guilty. Blood red in guilt. So what's his job? What does he do in the courtroom of heaven as the advocate? He says, the punishment has been paid, my Lord. I paid for it at the cross called Calvary. Let my people go free. When you sin, remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Christ, if you're not a Christian, remember this. Christ is authorized and commissioned to defend every sinner who applies to him for forgiveness. If, I'm not sure, but I think advocates can refuse to take up a case. I'm not very sure how the judiciary works, but I think they can say, no, no I'm, not, I'm not prepared to defend that person. Christ is commissioned by the courts of heaven, authorised every sinner who applies to you for pardon and forgiveness. You're not only authorised, you're commissioned to forgive that person all their sins, past, present and future. What a great saviour Christians have. What a great saviour. So that's the advocate bit. Now what about this massive word propitiation? What does that mean? Well, we'll just have a go at it. A few, uh, a few thoughts, because there's a, there's a lot in it, and I've no intention of, of exhausting it. I can't, couldn't, anyway. Um, what all does it mean? Well, the first thing to note, it means the appeasing of the anger of God. The word expiation apparently means everything that propitiation means except putting out the anger of God. You see, the Bible tells us we are all by nature children of wrath, Jesus as, uh, just as others. God is angry. Now, I searched my Bible recently, you know, for that, for that text. God is angry uh, with the sinner every day. Do you know that text is not in the Bible? God is angry with the sinner every day. There's no verse in the Bible that says that. Do you know what it says? God is angry with the wicked every day. You see, if God is angry with the sinner every day, 
He's angry with me. He's angry with you. He's angry with the Christian. No, 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 no. Christ put away his anger. Christ finished his anger. Exhausted it. He took it upon himself. The sinner is free and God is not angry with us. Do note, of course, he's grieved when we sin. Oh, he's grieved when we sin. But he's not angry with the Christian. Christ took anger. I love Isaiah as a kid. I used to love it, the chapter 12, because it was short. There's only six verses. But boy, there's a lot in it. What verse is it? Three? No. Oh yeah, verse one. In that day, you'll say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Now note, his anger is not turned off. It's turned away. If God turned off his anger against sin, he'd no longer be God. He'd be changeable. But you see, as we are by nature, the wrath of God is heading upon our heads. But the moment you believe in Christ, for the Christian, God turned his wrath, his anger, from going on the head of the sinner, he turned it to go on the head of his son. He turned it away. He redirected his wrath onto his son so that we could go free. He can't stop being angry with sin. But for we Christians, no more anger. Grief, definitely. Grief, definitely. But no anger. That's the gospel. In the word propitiation, there's that idea. His anger is turned away. And the blood of Christ placates his anger forever. That's the first idea that's in the word propitiation. There's another idea. The idea of... um, the idea of covering. You see, isn't there a verse in the Bible that says God cannot look upon sin? Can't look upon it. So, Christ's blood, well, you've heard the term, under the shelter of the blood. When God looks upon the sinner, about the Christian's sins, he doesn't see their sins, he sees the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Boys and girls, it's great to see you out at night. I'm going to tell you a story. When I was in school, long, long time ago, and we used to have to practice um, writing with a pen for the first time. And, you know, when you start writing, it was a fountain pen. It was 
It wasn't like a biro or a felt tip. You had to dip it in ink and it was quite easy to blot your paper when you were writing. And I remember uh, one boy, he, he, he wrote a, a whole page, an A4 page. It was perfect, apart from one blot. One blot. And oh, just spoiled everything. But you know, the teacher went away, she went to her desk and she opened the door, took out something, and went back to the page, and she had a gold star. And she put the gold star on top of the blot. And when you looked where the blot was, all you saw was a gold star. But you know, boys and girls, that's what God does with the Christian's sins. He covers it with the blood of his son. I don't mean physically, but spiritually speaking. So that when God looks at we Christians have done wrongly, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ and it makes him smile. And there's a verse in the Bible, it's a sweet aroma to God. The very thing that angered him, because Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. I'll pass over you. And you know, that's a tremendous thing in, 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 in Exodus when it happened in the, in the Exodus and the Passover. I often, I often think of um, when the angel passed through the land of Egypt that night and killed the firstborn in every household. And then he came to a household and the side post and the lintel at the top was covered with the blood. It passed over it. But I often thought, well, the angel, when he passed over did he say, hey, wait a minute, are there any Egyptians in there? He did not say that. Anyone, including an Egyptian, who was in that house, was passed over. In fact, there were some Egyptians. Some other commentators say, certainly, well, you can read it. I've forgotten the, forgotten the verse. But there's a mixed multitude went up. Foreigners went with them. They joined themselves to the people of God. So, propitiation, placating the anger of God, covering sin, and then there's a third element in the word propitiation, the criminal debt of sin is paid in full. Now, have I more or less covered that already? I'm not sure. See, sin is a debt. You remember the two accounts of the Lord's prayer. In one account, it says, forgive us our sins. And in the other account, it says, forgive us our debts. Sin is a debt. It's a debt we owe to God. But it's a certain kind of debt. There's different kinds of debt. There's money debt and there's, there's criminal debt. There's theological terms for them. I've forgotten them at the moment. But supposing, for example, in our 
law courts today. Uh, supposing, um, supposing, supposing you're in debt with your garage, you, you owe them a hundred pound and you haven't got it and you can't pay it, and your friend knows about it, he can go along to the garage man and say, look, look, see that friend of mine, he owes you a hundred pound, he's, he's gone through hard times, he hasn't got it. here's a cheque, put that down to his account. Garage man's perfectly happy. That's money debt, Okay. But wait a minute. Supposing that man kills someone and he's sentenced to life imprisonment, can his friend go along to the authorities and say, hey, look, I'll serve his prison sentence for him? He can't do that. It's not allowed. It's a different kind of debt. Our debt with God is like that. God was under no obligation whatsoever to permit the principle of a substitute. But hallelujah, God chose to do it. Under no obligation to do it, but he chose to do it because he delights in mercy. What a great God the Christians have. What a great God we have. Join us. Forgiveness, as I think we've said already, is not the same thing as debts written off. Forgiveness is debts paid in full. So that even God has no complaints. He's been paid for the debts of his people in full. There's a fourth idea in the word propitiation. The idea of removing an offence. Sorry, removing the offence. The scripture term I want to refer to is Making an end of sin and finishing transgression. Only Christ, only the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, can make an end of sin. You know, detectives today, I'm told, never ever forget who done it. And the next time a similar offence is occurred, one of the first questions they ask is, now, who has done that type of sin before? General procedure, I've been told. I think I've probably said here before, Psalm 103 As far as east is distant from the west, so far has he from us removed all our iniquity. Psalm 103, verse 12. Now, this is why I believe in the plenary and verbal inspiration of Scripture. Every word of Scripture inspired by God. Note The Bible doesn't say as far as north is from the south, but as far as east is from the west. 
He's removed our sin as far as east is from the west, not as far as north is from the south. Think about it. Suppose I'm standing in the North Pole and someone removes my sins to the South Pole. That's as far away as you can get in the world. But they couldn't be found. It could be traced. Christ makes an end of sin. Now you see, when you say as far as east is distant from the west, there's no east pole. There's no west pole. You're standing somewhere in the globe and you remove, you go, you remove something east while it's round there. So you move round and you say, well, where's your sin now? Oh, it's in the east. So you move around again. Where is it now? Oh, it's in the east. You go round and round and now you never reach making an end of sin. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. The sins of Israel will be sought for, but they'll not be found. Christ has taken them away to a place where even God will not find it. He's paid the debt in full. He's made an end of sin and finished transgression. There's a fifth thing in propitiation just want to mention. It's the idea of a victim. You see, someone has to pay. We don't pay. But someone has to pay. There's a victim. Christ. He pays. He's He's the one that pays. And there was there is no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. The idea of a victim. Now, finally, the last thing regarding propitiation. As far as I can make out, there's, there's the idea of a meeting place. The mercy seat. You see, as we said at the beginning, God is angry with the wicked every day. And you're convicted of your sin. And you say, I want to make peace with God. Where? Where? Where is there a place where I can meet an angry God in peace? Where can I meet an angry God in peace? And there's only one place. That's the foot of the cross. A place called Calvary. That's a place where you can meet an angry God in peace. The mercy seat. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The place where we can have immunity from prosecution. And that's why I asked at the beginning, what did we do when we sinned yesterday? Did we confess our sins? Did we go to the place called Calvary? Do we believe? 
Christ's atonement put away God's anger forever. That's the gospel. But just one other thing in conclusion. What are we going to make about the last uh, clause? Uh, He himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now tell me, what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to go into it except to say just two or three things briefly. It cannot mean, sadly, that the whole world is forgiven. Because Christ speaks about those that will go into hell. And how they'll regret. How it's a place of torment. You see, to get the blessings of the gospel, you're to believe. You're to believe. But if you don't believe, you've missed the blessing. Sadly, not the whole world will believe. So what does it mean? Well, as I said, I'm not going to go into it. But whatever else it means, it means two, two things. It means, number one, there's no other saviour in the whole world. Eh? There's no other name given amongst men, under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. He's the only saviour in the whole world. There is no other you go to, you go to, you retire and you go to a new village and you say, where's the, where's the village doctor? Who's the village policeman? In that sense, it's saying he's the saviour of the whole world. He's the only saviour in these parts. There's no other saviour in the whole world. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And the other thing it means, surely, surely, this is a deduction really, but surely, surely, it means this. The gospel must be preached to the whole world. If he's the only saviour for the whole world, the gospel must go out to the whole world. It's surely important when Christ rose from the dead, when he ascended, he went back to the disciples. And one of the last things he said to them, if it wasn't the last, I think it was, Matthew 28, yeah. Go tell every creature. Don't hide it. Don't keep it to yourself. Spread it. Tell it to the whole world. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. May God, the Holy Spirit, make his word, his truth, effectual to every one of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Please take 
the things of Christ and make them ours. Unite every single one of us here from the youngest to the oldest to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in a vital living faith. We put in our application for salvation, for mercy. As unworthy sinners, we apply for this grace we don't deserve. Lord, we would take you at your word. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Here in mercy, answer in peace as we pray only in Jesus' name. Amen. We all conclude our service by singing from Psalm 18. We sing verses Mark 1 to 6. Five stanzas. Psalm 18 at the beginning. Thee will I love, O Lord, my strength. My fortress is the Lord, my rock, and he that doth to me deliverance afford. Go down to verse 6. In my distress I called on God. Cry to my God, did I? He from his temple heard my voice. To his ears came I cry. Psalm 18, verses 1 to 6.
was all now and forever.